Kyle here, half of the casual tutors. I just wanted to pop in right before this episode and give a little statement about the following episode. So this is our Watsy drama episode, and this this focuses mainly on the the drama in the Magic the Gathering world. I know there's been some drama in the D and D world as well with Watsy. Um, it seems like anywhere Wizards of the Coast goes, they drag a little bit of drama with them. We just Matt and I wanted to make a statement, and we wanted to explain that we do love Magic the Gathering. This is our favorite game this is why we do what we do and we we mean we, we don't mean anything negative about the game itself based on this we just we want to support our local game stores we want to support our player base and we want to bring new players into this game we fear that some of the things wizards of the coast has done in the past or continues to do is is threatening to the game and that's that's what this episode is about we just don't want anyone to get the wrong ideas thanks for listening and enjoy the show And I'm Matt. And we're the Casual Tutors. Today we're going to be talking controversies, which with Wizards of the Coast, there seems to be plenty of these days. Yeah, it's never ending, so I think this is going to be a good topic to talk about. Yeah, we're definitely not going to touch on everything because it's a lot of history to cover, but we're going to go over the last, most recent stuff. Yeah, so I guess starting out, we'll start with kind of the, the beginning of the Wizards of the Coast controversies, which is no MSRP. Yeah, this is a, a big deal by Wizards saying they no longer are going to be publicizing an MSRP out into the public and everything's going to be driven by retailer pricing, which quickly afterwards was found out not to be true because they started to be supported by or started posting product exclusively on Amazon direct. Right, which means they're they're posting it for a price. Yeah, so obviously Amazon expects there to be some kind of price given on products that they're listing. Obviously, that gets modified by Amazon's secret algorithm up and down, and we don't ever get a clear picture of what that MSRP that Wizards is you know, advertising on Amazon, but we do get a good general idea of where they expect the items to sell. Well, and another thing, too, is you start to see, and coming from an ex-LGS owner, you start to see people looking at other, looking at, you know, maybe Amazon, but Amazon can always sell cheaper, of course, but maybe looking at other LGSs, looking online, comparing prices and kind of matching those prices. So you end up getting somewhat of an MSRP no matter what. Amazon's kind of a, a race to the bottom for every retailer out there because it's incredibly hard for them to compete with those kinds of prices. And to do that, you know, they margins are going to be minimal. You see that effect locally at your stores when you walk in. And obviously, when they go through middlemen and distributors, their pricing is going to be higher in general. And it's extremely hard for them to match it. Not being a local store owner, but being in a store often enough, seeing the customers come and go. And oftentimes it's, well, I can get this cheaper online or I can go elsewhere. And the only thing these store owners can really say is, well, Go for it. Get those cheap products where you can. It, it sucks because everyone knows they need to support their local game stores, but it's a catch-22 for everyone. Well, and the thing is, is we, I mean, we were getting to a point where we were looking at Amazon and they were selling D&D books for the same price that we were getting them from the distributor. We, the only way we could match those prices, we literally, we wouldn't make any money off of it. Yeah, zero markup, which yeah. then why even be in business? Right. So shortly after that, they, Amazon also acknowledged that they don't recognize the secondary market. Wizards of the Coast acknowledged. Or, yeah, not Amazon. <laughs> Same thing, we're there. Right, which I mean is, of course, uh, bullshit. Right. They they release these products priced competitively. And if you notice, we're going to talk about secret layers here in a minute, but all these products are desirable cards, desirable art, something along those lines. And while sometimes they're cheaper than what the secondary market is pricing the regular cards at, they're often not very far behind. No. And in fact, if you watch a lot of the, uh, like, is it worth it to buy videos? You'll start to notice that these secret layers, especially a lot of times kind of line up scarily close to what the secondary market to buy those would be, as well as not even just thinking about the product card prices versus the secondary market, but there's a lot of things going on in the background that Wizards does that seems to 
be directly influencing the secondary market, such as limited set runs. And something or a term that we hear often is card equity. And basically what that breaks down to is the acknowledgement that specific cards have a high value or a high equity for Wizards to hold in reserve. Obviously, they don't want to drop a set that has every bomb, every card everybody ever wanted in one go. They want to spread that out and have those chase cards that get people purchasing their sealed product over and over and over again multiple times a year. And the other thing, too, talking about the secondary market in Wizards is the reserve list. I mean, the reserve list, how could, how could the reserve list exist in Wizards' eyes if they don't look at the secondary market? They're acknowledging that certain quote-unquote investors have a bunch of cardboard stock in their closet and binders that has value because it's old. And they're promising not to reprint those cards to preserve the value of them. That itself is an acknowledgement of a secondary market. Because that's where the value is. We see things like Sarah Angel, Shiv and Dragon. If you look at those alpha prices, they're all still way up there. And those aren't reserve lists. So stop being cowards and just reprint them. Old cards are still valuable. Well, and everyone's going to want old cards. Everyone's going to want chase cards. I mean, there's even certain, certain cards that have certain artwork that's worth more. Just because the collectors are collectors. Collectors are going to collect things based off of a plethora of different variables, not just how many times has it been reprinted. It's art specifically. I'm definitely a sucker for it. When I'm proxying cards, I'm often proxying cooler versions. There's a ton of different Sharknadas out there or Shark Typhoon. That's just one example. It's it's endless, the amount of different arts. Uh, everyone's got their favorite waifu and different cards. It's everything you could think of is available to print. And I mean, the thing is too, is I, I've, I've gone out and I've spent a couple of, you know, extra cents. I mean, most of these cards aren't, aren't that much of a difference in price, but I've definitely, uh, victimized is a good example. I I've spent the few extra sets to get one of the older versions of the victimized art, just because I really like that, the older art and how it's, how it's, represented on there i think the it, it almost looks like um it, the older cards almost look like the artwork is actually painted onto the card versus newer ones that look like they're you know like digitally generated art phyrexian altar is another great example of that there's just beautiful old art out there and not that the new art isn't great but it just it's hard to hold a candle up to those original artist renderings Another thing that really gets it for me is those retro frame love your game store retro frame art cards that we see that came out. I want to say last year it was Bulls Citadel, Goose, Dig Through Time, a bunch of different cards like that in those retro foil frames. Foil alert for next week, but we're getting those back in the commander decks and as kind of a, a mystical archive card in Brothers War. It's really great to see those retro frames because I'm a sucker for them. Well, we had, I really like the, like, Findhorn Elves and Ball Lightning, the year-stamped retro frame cards that yeah, we the got. Yeah, the 30th anniversary yeah. promo cards that they sent all your stores. We'll continue sending for the foreseeable future the next yeah. few seconds. I'll tell you what, I already, I have a play set of German Findhorn Elves now, and yeah, I love Findhorn it. Yeah, Findhorn Elfin. It's a great card. Moving on, kind of wanted to touch on Secret Layers and Universes Beyond. Take it for what it's worth. Everyone has their own desires and what they want to see the game and how they imagine magic should be. I'm a big fan of Universes Beyond. They don't all call to me. I'm like not a big fan of League of Legends or a few of those other ones, but you know, I did buy the Arcana Secret Lair, partially because there was a certain chase card in there. But the art is beautiful and I'm a big forty K player and those forty K decks definitely got me going oh and i i only got one of them i'm super bummed out about it they are incredible decks they're really cool i mean even if you're not like i don't play 40k but i'm a a huge sci-fi fan and just seeing the the artwork and the synergy of those decks with a sci-fi theme rather than our typical magic and fantasy theme is is awesome kyle and i i wouldn't say we're the minority but there's definitely people out there that are quote-unquote outraged that there are now guns in magic. I say get over it because it's all fake and it's not portraying any real violence. But, you know, that, that's just one of the many reasons. People also don't think Lord of the Rings should come to magic. It's a own unique IP and it's going to interfere with magic's IP. They're too closely related. We've heard several different arguments back and forth. Lucille from The Walking Dead and generally The Walking Dead in general was 
controversial because it was the first universes beyond release and those cards were high impact and we haven't seen any reprints since no and I, version. I i was going to bring that up too actually it's it's interesting to see the impact that the walking dead secret layer had as the the very first universes beyond product and the outrage i mean there were it, it was everywhere it was all over twitter it was all over reddit people were losing their minds over this and it's interesting to see as we've we've come from that into you know Street Fighter and Stranger Things and Warhammer 40K with the announcement of Lord of the Rings and Doctor Who next year. And it's just like it's I don't know if it's a matter of people are like, okay, this is something that's here to stay. There's no reason to put the energy into crying about it. Or if you know, here's the thing is maybe there was just less people that liked the walking dead in the magic community than they thought. And a lot of these other IPs have bigger fan bases in the magic community. And that's why there's less kind of crying about it. I I'm not exactly sure. I haven't had an IP so far that I'm a super huge fan of the closest thing I could say is, and this is, this is honestly how you properly do it is the Godzilla cards from Ikoria. That I was a huge fan of. That is the proper way to do universes beyond in my opinion. I, I think it's fine the way that they're doing it now in the, the off products like Secret Layers and Commander decks, but the Godzilla cards was such a great idea. I'm curious, speaking of strange, not quite universes beyond products, the Transformers cards, are those, those are confirmed for Brothers War? Yep, those will be in Brothers War for sure. We also had the Van Helsing cards over in Innistrad. Yes, like Lord Dracula and the twin sisters and yeah, everything Dracula's like that. Dracula's Castle, yeah. all those cards. Those are all really cool. And that's kind of on the same theme of those Godzilla cards is they're actual physical cards from the set that have a different name with the original card's name underneath it. So and, you know what the card is. Right, and obviously unique art, all that stuff, the flavor text, everything is different on them. And it's a great way of doing it. That. That's actually my personal preference is if they're going to print new cards like this, there's a non-universes beyond alternative. Like we see with Stranger Things where they printed different versions of those cards and threw them in as chase cards and set boosters. It really makes it so that the product isn't limited. It makes it so that people that aren't fans of that IP don't have to play with that IP. My biggest thing for everything in Magic is access because it's a game I want to play and I want to play with everything. So when they limit it, it's really frustrating. I actually don't know how I feel about the Stranger Things, the way that they did that. It's something that, like you said, I think they needed to do. I think they needed to give access to those cards. They needed to keep them thematic and it did work really well. It's strange that that's the only one they've done it for. Yeah, I'm definitely interested to see where it goes. Obviously, with 40K, we saw a bunch of regular existing cards printed into the set with new art, but no unique names. That's definitely a cool. I'll take more art. I want to see those Astartes. I want to see those Primarchs printed in Magic Universe, too. Kind of like that Stranger Things. One, just to get the availability of the cards up there for everyone again. And then two, just to satisfy those people that are 100% anti-IP in Magic. I think the hard thing about that is it's the same reason why we don't see the Walking Dead cards is because when you start to print things like Walker tokens, you know what I mean? They're so vastly different. Like you could go in and just change the name, but then you get so much more confusing. So it's like, how are you going to introduce the Astartes in under a different name? Well, I don't think the tokens need to change. I think all these generators that make the Stardust tokens or Walker tokens, they all could still exist. We have gold and treasure and magic, which functionally, aside from a tapping, are the same thing. They're definitely not afraid of printing tokens that are very similar to other tokens. That's a realm that Wizards is comfortable with. They could just break wide open, no problem. Yeah, it, it's going to be interesting to see moving forward. What I was going to ask, I don't know if you know this, Matt, but the the Transformers cards that I mentioned, are those going to be like the Godzilla cards or are those going to be their own cards? I believe they're their own cards and they're going to be exclusive to set and collector boosters. I'm not 100% sure. I've only kind of transgentially seen them out there in the Uh world, but they look cool. Some of them seem like they're trying to be that 80s art style, kind of fall short and don't quite capture that imagination in me. Some of them are definitely spot on, though. I don't know. My wife loves Transformers, so I might be buying a collector's uh, booster box just to see what we get for her. Well, we'll definitely have to crack that, try to get something going. We can show everybody. Another, probably the biggest controversy about Secret Layers is the full foil commander deck that they put up there. Heads I win, tails you lose. 
coin flipping. Has anyone seen it? Does it exist? Oh, it supposedly exists. Obviously, it's over a year behind in production. Wizards did send out a, an email to people that purchased it that it was supposed to be mailed October 24th. I believe some people got shipping confirmation on that or before that date. But I think there's just as many, if not more, people that got pushed back into November that still... They might have gotten another email saying shipping was coming in November, but still haven't received their product. Obviously, Wizards knows it's a problem. They gave collector boosters for Kamigawa. Some collector boosters, everybody that purchased it is kind of compensation for the delay. In my opinion, that's too little, too late. It's almost in the realm of put down a down payment for something a year and a half in advance. You should be getting something extra good with it. And I guess we'll see. Maybe they are shipping out some extra bonuses in the boxes with them. I know tons of people are very frustrated about it, and uh, I didn't even buy the product, and it's frustrating for me seeing friends that are waiting for the deck because, you know, I want to play against it. I've seen proxies of it. It seems super cool. Or people that just went out and built the deck on their own because they got tired of waiting. And I think it's a, a giant failure for a company that prints pre-cons multiple times a year to not be able to ship one pre-con because it was foil and there was a couple of double-faced cards in it and stuff like that. It's very strange to see them having such huge production issues with a single pre-con, practically. There, there is the excuse of COVID and supply chain issues and stuff like that, but definitely not a year over a year delay on anything in my mind. Maybe they're having issues with the entire deck pringling before they can even get it in the box. Yeah, they got to start foiling both sides so that they fight against each other. Moving on, kind of wanted to talk about the pricing structure, we already touched on how there's no existing MSRP, but the pricing structure for limited run sets, so your master sets, your, I don't, I don't think Infinity is limited run, but things like collector booster packs, stuff like that, that just have limited access. Wizards is really kind of shooting for the moon, so to say, when it comes to these luxury products. Well, and it seems every six months, Wizards is announcing that they New record profits. We need higher profits. We need, uh, we need to increase profits by this amount in this many years. And so we're seeing more premium products at a higher price point. We're seeing an increase in pricing across the board. Yeah. And we understand they got boards to appease and shareholders to make money for. They are a company. There's nothing wrong with them making money. But it's, it's this attitude where every year, every quarter needs to be record profits, guaranteeing profits to Hasbro, carrying Hasbro in general. It's definitely coming at the expense of the players. You know, we lived in a world, I distinctly remember master sets being $250 a box and that being very expensive. And now we're pushing three, 400 right out the gate. And part of it is FOMO where, you know, we as a player base – fear of missing out on these limited products and really drive the price up because there's a, a spicy reprint or some exclusive cards everyone wants to get their hands on. So we're partially guilty of it, but Wizards definitely knows what they're doing when they design these sets. They know what's going to sell. They know that these prices that they're setting invisibly behind the black curtain are higher than what they used to be, and they're just – kind of making money hand over fist, and it's a little bit ridiculous. they got to give the dog a bone at some point. It's kind of back to that MSRP issue is where we're starting to see where before you had you had your set price and for the, you know a run of a set, pretty much expected to see that price. Unfortunately, without the MSRP, it's almost as if as soon as the product leaves Wizards' hands, it enters the secondary market. And with it entering that secondary market – we're seeing sealed products that are, I mean, we we ended up pre-ordering our Dominaria remastered as soon as they announced it, just so we could lock in that price because it's it's the weeks leading up as spoilers come out for these sets, prices are already changing. Even sealed product is changing rapidly in price. You might go down and buy a limited run box of something for two hundred and fifty dollars on release, and then. Two days later, come down to buy it again, and it's $20 more, $30 more. It's definitely a game where distributors know that they could keep pushing the product. And, you know, obviously, they're likely getting charged more by Wizards on top. So their profit margins have to adjust to account for that. But then slightly predatory to moderately predatory practices to just keep pushing it and pushing it and pushing it. It's almost 
price gouging. You know, obviously there's no emergency. Obviously this is a hobby luxury product that isn't mandatory for life. So it's just kind of despicable if somebody likes to see a healthy, like I said, availability of cards in the market. Well, it seems really strange because it seems like it, it makes it very difficult for new younger players to come into the game. It's, it's the, the game has been so focused on hitting the like 30 to 45 year old players who are a little more financially established. And I, I feel like the game has only started doing that in recent years. It was, it was never about that before. I mean, the biggest thing they, they really used to push bringing in these newer, younger players to increase the player base. Definitely seems like they're more than happy just to keep milking the same cow they have since the very beginning. And kind of a pro tip for those newer players, and Kyle touched on this when we talked about pre-ordering the Dominaria Remastered set. And again, this is Amazon. So when these sets release, Amazon lists them fairly competitively, and you could go on there and pre-order without any cash down. And they have a price match guarantee. Well, not price match, but a price guarantee where you'll never pay more than that price you pre-order at. And if it decreases, you pay that cheaper price. So getting on a year, six months early when they announce these products is good strategy until you figure out what your LGS pricing is going to be or wherever you buy your sealed product just to give you kind of a chance to get that product you want at competitive price. Right. Well, and I mean, don't feel bad because look at it this way. A lot of these limited run sets aren't going out to LGSs. Support them with the the standard sets you know they're going to get, but a lot of these limited run, even some like master sets, we're seeing less and less of it show up on shelves that are LGSs. And some sets that are not not even master sets, there's just special sets. I don't know what you would even call them, but some of these like specialty products or sets aren't showing up at all. Kind of speaks to some fulfillment issues that are are a more recent occurrence with Wizards of the Coast and Magic. We saw it with the 40K Collectors Boosters. We saw it with Double Masters, where it seems like Wizards is really under underdoing these first print runs of these collector sets. And I can't imagine it's out of lack of anticipation of the product selling. They, Like I said, they know what they got. They know what's going to sell. And I almost wonder if it's just to kind of, you know, drive – these second and third print runs even higher and higher than the first print runs. You see another example, that's the Mythic Edition that came out with Guilds of Ravnica and stuff like that. Those were extremely limited, susceptible to scalpers, like everything else in our world these days. And they had the weirdest way to buy them. You were buying them through Hasbro's eBay page. They were incredibly strange. They had huge issues where people were were ordering, getting confirmations, having money. If it happened to me, had money pulled out of our accounts for it and then being sent an email saying, hey, unfortunately, this actually sold out. So we're going to refund you in, you know, seven to 10 business days. And you're also not getting your product. Seems real, real weird. How do you not know how much product you're listing, especially on eBay where you have to list quantities and then to take so long to refund, but you're taking their money immediately. It's just, it's a strange business practice in general. And we kind of saw that not with eBay, but there was a secret layer published on Hasbro Pulse, which is Hasbro's direct buying page. And that was kind of strife with its own issues where load issues, stuff like that. Was it ready for the MTG DDoS? Lord knows these are not the only products that have had this issue. These are not the only products that they have royally screwed up in some fashion, whether it's overselling, whether it's, and we'll be getting to the most, the latest one, issues with confirming how many people are buying, which I don't know how you can mess that up, but... Yeah, definitely some, I don't know, technological issues or, I don't know, something that a multi-million dollar, billion dollar company should be more than equipped to handle. Okay, so we definitely have been ragging on Watsi a little bit. We're going to take a little bit of break and talk about a good thing that's, you know, it might be controversial out there in the world. And at least for me, it seems like a net positive, but I'm sure there's people out there that feel different. And that's the power level of the pre-con commander decks. Obviously, 40K is fairly recent, and that was probably, I would say, the most powerful set of decks that they've ever released. 
including uh, Commander 2016 or Ur Dragon, Atraxa, all those decks. I think just the synergies, the power level overall, the intricacies of the Warhammer decks are more powerful than those decks were. Well, some of them. I don't know. I, there might be there might be some precons out there that are more powerful than Imperium. I, I think Imperium is a more skillful deck, and it definitely is reliant on getting your draws more than the other three. But I think Imperium has. That's is why it's got powerful. blue, right? It, it has blue. It has to be good. Not that, you know, two of the other decks have blue in them or not. Oh, it's got blue and black. Never mind. It, you know, you're right. It is, the, it is powerful. And white now, you know, most powerful oh. color in Commander these days. Anyways, other decks in general, the. We're seeing it, you know, the past three or four years are becoming much more synergistic within themselves. And it seems like they have a much clearer direction on what they're trying to do. And ultimately, that leaves some more fun games. And as pre-constructed products for theoretically new players, it lets them leads them to a better experience that first time they sit down to play. Well, and the other nice thing, too, is the amount of commander decks we're getting. Yeah, multiple times a year. We're not so focused on that Commander Christmas, as Kyle called it. You know, I think it was every April. We, we August. A, was it August? Yep. Yeah, a big set of five. And we still get that. We still get the year of Commander decks. Which is now in spring, I think, which is strange. I don't know why that got moved around when they started doing yeah. more. No, no one can explain Watsy these days. But, you know, every set coming out with two Commander decks with them is definitely a big boon to the format. I'm definitely supportive, especially Brothers War. We're seeing 100% retro frame deck and some spicy reprints. You got Lithoform Engine, stuff like that in, it, in a new frame. And it's just another card to add in my collection and another powerful card and a bunch of different powerful cards. So. Yeah, and I would, I mean, I would recommend too, uh, to new players and old players alike, if you're getting to a point where you're not wanting to buy whole boxes anymore, uh, booster boxes or set boosters or whatever, buy the pre-cons. I, I, I buy, I missed Dominari United. I, I can't even remember why. I could still probably just pick them up if I wanted to. But I buy almost every pre-con that comes out. And sometimes I'll not buy any other products for a set, but still buy those Commander pre-cons because they're good. There's going to be good cards and there's good new cards, good reprints. You never know when you're going to get another Dockside Extortionist. <laughs> And I'm, I'm kind of on that same strategy. I'm probably pretty bad at it because I get baited into buying a set booster box or something every once in a while. But sticking to commander decks and then buying singles is my main go-to strategy these days as well. Back on that bad train, we got the biggie here. We're talking 30th anniversary for Magic the Gathering and several different topics falling underneath this header. We're going to start off with the 30th anniversary secret layer, keeping on that secret layer train. Right off the bat, Wizards announced that they're having the 30th anniversary secret layer. Showed off seven, I would say, spectacular choices. Chrome Mox, alternate Sharknado, Shark Typhoon. Oh, the Shark Typhoon is so cool. And just, you know, five other amazing cards. And got the community in general super excited. It was going to be a 30-card release, you know, kind of a a pseudo-advent calendar. It it seemed like it was going to be a great product for that 30th anniversary. And then they announced the rest of the cards. Yeah, so later in spoiler season, we got the remaining 23. And disappointing, doesn't even begin to start. There, There's a couple cool cards in there, a couple cool arts. In general, it's chaff. Yeah, it's it's just like Christmas. They, uh, You got your, your couple of good presents that they led with, and then the rest is just socks and underwear. Yeah, you, you got that brand new Xbox, and then you got the Burger King Sneak King game with it. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, coming into last week when this product was actually available, brand new on the site, they, you know, pushed it November 1st. Come get it, 10 a.m. Well, 10 a.m. rolls around, and the site's down. Pushed people are unable to even access it. There's varying level of degrees. People are able to put it in their cart. When they go to their cart, it's no longer there. Just... Tons of different site-bound issues, and you know how could you not expect it when they pushed the advertising for the product so hard? They had to expect big numbers visiting their site. You're probably starting to see a uh, pattern here of Wizards of the Coast not understanding how websites work, and they they keep 
losing their website, things go down, there's issues with purchasing, there's issues with confirmations. I, I At this point, I'm pretty sure that Wizards of the Coast is just using like some random guy off of Fiverr to run their entire web department. Yeah, they're, they're calling up GoDaddy and asking for support on the fly. Like I said earlier, it's, it's really inexcusable for a company that does as much business as they do, especially web-based business. They're, you know, owned by Hasbro, which is the largest game manufacturer in the world. Like there's gotta be some IT department somewhere in the the bowels of that building that could have made that site work. It's ridiculous. It's absolutely ridiculous. I mean, Wizards just announced they're, they're what the first, the first gaming company to have a billion dollars in profit. Yeah. Insane billion with a B. Like, and you can't get your website to work to sell more product on on almost every single major uh, product release. It's not just it's not like this is the first time this has happened. It's like we said earlier. I mean, every single time they've tried they've tried different formats, like we've mentioned, uh, different different uh, marketplaces, and still every single time they mess it up. And I just at this point, I. I it doesn't make any sense. I mean, I, my brain can't even comprehend what's going on. The issues didn't stop there, though. Once the site started running properly, people getting these items in the cart, getting their payments in, and looking at their credit card statement or their bank statement later that day, finding out they got charged for two or three or multiple, or just the fact that you know maybe they purchased multiple and they shouldn't have been able to, but that's more of an ethics issue. Yeah, right? one per customer. I don't know why that's so hard for these companies to understand. Yeah, definitely would have prevented scalping. You will still sell out, I guarantee it. But anyways, these people that only did want to buy one ended up with multiples to the point where they sent out emails to every customer with multiple purchases just to confirm if they wanted them. This is after the FOMO hit where they ran out of the product within an hour. Yeah, well, they, they ran out of the product because they were they had people buying a single copy and they were selling three copies to them. It doesn't... It. I don't even know... I. Yeah, you know, regardless, you're emailing these people after everyone that, you know, was possibly interested in the product saw it sell out. They checked the secondary market, which, you know, quote unquote, doesn't exist or isn't recognized. And they see this product going for double, triple, even four times as much as the regular buying price for that. Why would they ever ask to not get multiple yeah, well, and that's, I mean, that's a good point I didn't even think about is there's probably a lot of people who accidentally got two or three copies, saw what was going on, saw the secondary market, saw this, and then decided on afterwards that, hey, you know, actually, yes, I did want these. I'm going to keep them when normally they would have only bought the one. Yeah, to snap keep easy money. And it's just incredibly frustrating. I didn't, I didn't even attempt it. Like I said, after I saw those other 23 cards, it just it put a bad taste in my mouth. It's not worth it. No, and I guess it's apparently worth it to some people, but in general, not. Well, and I will say, I mean, and this is, if you don't have some of those chase cards and you like the, well, first of all, if you like the art on anything, buy it. It's a, the, the professor actually released a video on this recently where he talks about how the price is not, it does not justify the purchase on a lot of these secret layers, but I've bought some for this reason. The professor's bought some for this reason. I'm sure most Magic players have bought secret layers or special products for this reason. They like the art. If you like the art, buy the product. It's fine. On the other hand, if you need the cards, I mean, honestly, I, I can't imagine. I don't know who out there is like, I need every single one of these cards specifically. If you're missing a Chrome Mox from your collection, you're like, oh, this is the perfect time to get a Chrome Mox. Just go buy a Chrome Mox. Yeah, you don't need... 29 other cards that you might already have or you just flat out won't ever use because they're not good by singles. And I, I'm one of those people that when secret layers first came out, I was almost buying every single one because it was unique art. They were cool. They were good cards. I was buying them. And as time kept going, I started becoming less and less interested in them. Even with some of the cool arts, if the cards just weren't usable in my opinion or suboptimal, I was printing proxies with the same art. Well, and here's the thing, too, is I, like, for example, um, I bought the first Super Drop, and it was awesome. The first Super Drop, I actually think, was really good. I really enjoyed it. There was some, I think there was a, a Snowlands pack in the first Super Drop that was completely worthless. Other than that, the other ones were awesome. Had cats. 
the cats were super cool. Obviously, the multicolored madness one with like the um, sliver queen and ur dragon. Ur dragon. That one was Reaper cool. King. Bitter blossom was actually probably my favorite. I really liked yeah. the bitter blossom with the tokens that all matched up. But I stopped as well, and then they announced the constellation art for all the old Theros gods, and I thought that was the coolest thing in the world. But again, I had been spending so much money on this game. I had I had bought in a bunch of these secret layers that still now to this day just sit on a shelf in my gaming room. And so I was like, no, I'm not going to do it. And then we go to Command Fest Reno. And lo and behold, there's vendors set up. And guess what these vendors have? Those secret layers. They've got the individual cards. I pick up like the three that I use index regularly. And it costs me, I don't know. $20 to pick up those three rather than spending $200 on a super drop for every single constellation art God. Yeah. I will say probably the best benefit, at least, you know, initially when supply is high on these secret layers, the best benefit of them is that they're oftentimes cheaper than some of those staple cards that Chrome mocks in the 30th anniversary secret layer may be cheaper than our regular Chrome mocks. Once everything shakes out and they start getting that secondary market hit, they might not because the, the reasons we already talked about, yeah. but there's, there's been several secret layer cards individually that I picked up off a of TCG player that were 10 or $15 cheaper than their regular printed counterparts. Yeah. Give it some time. Let them ship, let them, uh, let them hit people's doors and then give it a couple of weeks past that. Give it a month past that. Look at the look at the prices, and I bet you some of those chase cards that you're looking for are they're going to go down in price. So the next big controversy around the 30th anniversary was the 30th anniversary packs, four packs, 15 cards each, reprinted non-tournament legal editions of ABU cards. Reserve list cards that, you know, obviously the real copies have high values. These copies artificially, in my opinion right now, are having high values. But $250 a pack, $1,000 to buy all four of these for 60 cards that realistically aren't really legal anywhere. Obviously, groups that allow proxies are probably going to allow them unless there's a specific animosity within that local group. Or they just feel that some of those cards are too powerful for the format or flat out not legal. Like Lotus isn't legal in commander. You know, you're not going to be playing that even if you crack it. I mean, here's the thing. It's you're not going to crack it. I, I'm going to tell you that right now. You're not cracking a black Lotus. The, the product is it, it's the closest thing to a legal scam. that <laughs> Wizards of the coast has ever done. You're not going to crack. I mean, the, the odds of you cracking a power nine, you might crack a dual in. I'll give it to you. But again, it's, it's fake. And to be completely honest, just take that thousand dollars and just go buy a dual end. You, you buy prob- several yeah. revised duels by, by, yeah, you probably buy two of them at this point. They're, you're going down. Are they I going saw, down? Uh, just a couple days ago. in one of those MTG sick deal groups on Facebook, people were selling out of revised Savannah's moderately played for 150 bucks. Oh, I'm going to go buy some duels. Right, yeah, I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing what they got in Salt Lake. But yeah, yeah, go buy, if they're coming, if they're starting to come down in price like that, go out and just buy the duels you need, because those are really what you're going to play with. Here's the thing, depending, I don't know very many legacy no, uh, players. Some people have some super sweet cubes. Cubes too, I do like cubes, but here's the thing, I was working on a power cube, I, I actually have a power cube built on, on one of our uh, deck building sites, I'm going to proxy the whole thing. Yep. Why, why wouldn't you, like, especially for a cube? Print the entire cube for less than half of what one of those packs cost. Yeah, yeah, I, I, you really could. You could print the entire power cube for 100 bucks. Do that. Spend your money on that. Spend your money on, on printing these proxies to do things like that. Spend your money on buying singles. You play Commander, go buy your original duels. Go buy, this, go buy the Fetchlands first. I bet you there's a lot of you out there that don't even have Fetchlands. I am surprised how little I see so Fetchlands. Right yeah. So cheap compared to what they were. Yeah, buy Fetches and Shocks. Yeah, great cards for Commander. And modern, it's modern staples, obviously. Yeah, oh yeah. Something kind of deceptive about this product, too, is how they printed it. In the past, collector's editions have 
Goldberg or collector's editions, non-tournament legal cards, those tournament packs they released back in the 2000s. They were called gold bordered when they literally had gold borders to signify that they weren't legal in any format. And these cards didn't lose that. They just inverted what face they're on. So now they look like legit magic cards on the front, black border, everything. And then you flip them over and there's the gold border with these 30th anniversary logos. It's and weird. It's, it's almost like 90% of your player base plays with sleeves on and they're not going to be able to tell what's a fake card or not. It seems really sketchy to me. Yeah. Advertise them as non-tournament legal. So why aren't you printing them in the same way as every other non-tournament legal card? And, you know, obviously, upon further inspection, they wouldn't pass muster because they do say 30th anniversary on the front of them instead of having a set symbol. So there is that. But they should just make it blatant. There's no reason yeah. to hide it in the back. And, and I don't know. I mean, I guess I have not seen one in person, so I don't know. But there's I, – I don't know how often I look at set symbols. I mean, the set symbol is such a small, tiny part of the card. I when, – obviously, when I'm looking at cards – under the guise that they might be fake. The set symbol is one of the first things I go to because it is easy to mess up. I just, I, I don't want to have to look at cards under the guise that they might be fake. Yeah, understandable. But um, it, it's just, it's very weird. And people out there are making the argument, well, they're collector's items. They want People want to display these and they don't want to have that ugly gold border. Well, guess what? It's a collectible card game. It's a trading card game. Everything we do in this game is theoretically collectible. Those old collector's edition packs that had the gold frame, those were all printed to be collected. And they're still worth a decent amount of money. Yeah, and it's because people do things like the gold border guys, cradles, and stuff like that. They see commander play in groups that allow proxies for that kind of thing, and that's why their prices are going up. But, I mean, at least... If someone wanted to go out and say, oh, that guy is Karel, obviously is it, I'm not comfortable with you playing with that. There's no detective work that goes into that. There's no extra scrutiny. It's just players' preferences, and it's up there for everyone to see. Something you'll probably hear us say a lot, you know, rule zero. Right, definitely rule zero. And go back to our previous podcast if you want to hear more about that. Kind of taking a break here again, could talk about a couple good things and they do involve these packs is that four free booster packs were, I think kind of universally given out to anybody that had a black Lotus pass to the 30th anniversary event in Las Vegas, which obviously was their most expensive entry into the event and had a bunch of exclusive in its own right. And these four free packs weren't advertised, but you know, good on them. That's the kind of product that that's what they should be doing with this kind of product is, incentivizing, you know, people that are already spending a ton of money and giving you a little extra bonus, you know, not out there money grubbing for a thousand dollars for proxies, but being like, Hey, thanks for supporting us. Have a free collector's edition back. You, you know, you know, it's a, a really good idea that they did that just, I, I just thought of speaking of conventions and strange packs, the mystery boosters, mystery boosters was, was such a, it might've been like their, <laughs> I don't want to say their last great idea. Mystery boosters were such a good idea. The playtest cards are awesome. They're worth a decent amount of money. They're fun. Even the store versions that didn't have the playtest cards, we got much needed reprints in a sense. They they worked really well and they were such a cool product. And I would I would love to see it. I, I think they're still technically doing print runs of that for conventions. Is that true? So they did have it at Magic 30 in Las Vegas. It was, under my understanding, limited to two events per day, which is very, very low in my opinion. Like, why wouldn't they just run it on the when they had eight people fire a pod? Uh, I believe – I haven't confirmed if the Summit's going to have it, but I think they're still floating around. Speaking of playtest cards, Kyle, are those tournament legal? No. What use are those playtest cards? They're a collector's item. Oh, weird. Are they blatantly – not real magic cards? Yes. Oh, does that affect their value? No. Oh, okay, cool. I'm glad we covered that. Yep. Sorry, we're supposed to be talking about good stuff. But so one more thing is that they're shipping a free box of these packs, so four packs to WPN stores. And I believe WPN premium stores are getting a couple extra boxes of these. And, you know, that's good on Wizards. It's like 110% I mean, do that. Allegedly. Yeah, our our local store hasn't, stores haven't seen it, but it, it is 
printed by Watsy that they're sending these out to stores. And that's what they should be doing. Like I said, giving these products out there to incentivize, you know, loyal, good customers, people that are dropping six to $800 on just tickets to get into a convention probably deserve, you know, like a little extra gratitude stores that live on incredibly thin margins. will definitely see a huge boost from selling these packs and giving them to them free of charge. Like awesome. 110%, like the, the price support that they give stores for events, every set release, stuff like that is probably the best part about this community. And I just, I can't emphasize more that Watsi should definitely be, if not increasing, staying on that train where really incentivizing in-store play still. It is good. It, it's nice to see them support uh, stores in any way that they can or any way that they do. It, it's kind of strange. They It seems like Watsi does a lot of things that are like, counterintuitive <laughs> like they'll do things that seem to lower the margin for these stores and make it more difficult for these stores to sell the product mm-hmm. but will then turn around and send them free price support and all of this and and i mean even even the not just price support in the, the form of the packs that they send for like pre-release and everything but even in like promo cards i mean they still have to print these cards and it's still costing them something to make these cards so it's still free things that wizards is sending and it's just it's very strange to see these two contradicting examples that wizards does yeah it's a little bit of enfranchisement for the stores a false set of indebtedness and ingratitude. Like, like I said, it is a bonus for the store regardless. And it's awesome that Watsy does it because in the end, if these stores didn't exist, I'm sure they would take a significant hit, even with sales on Amazon. Like there's no way that, you know, local p- stores open to the public are not generating a good amount of money for them. Oh yeah. I mean, you can, you can have kitchen table magic all day long, but without tournaments and actual sanctioned tournaments, you're, you're losing a, a huge chunk of your player base. So back on that negative train, we're going to talk about the Las Vegas event. Kind of caveat this with neither Kyle and I were there. So we're basing all this on reports that we see on social media, after convention reports people put on Reddit, talking with a few people that were there, stuff like that. Honestly, it sounds like a generally bad event. From what I gather on after convention posts that people put up and talking with a couple of people is that they aren't regretting paying the money to get into the event, but they definitely wouldn't do it again. To me, that that speaks volumes because repeat customers probably are a huge part of these kinds of things. Getting people into the cons time after time is a steady source of income and support for these conventions. And having players say they're happy they did it, but never again isn't isn't great. Here's the thing is it's, I think it's going to be hard to defend a convention like this that, well, it's hard to say. So Magic Convention specifically, just because we are so used to it and the kind of convention it is, I think charging people at the door is is wrong. I think it's, it's the incorrect approach. I think it negatively affected. I think it's one of the biggest things to negatively affect this event. One of the reasons why we're seeing pictures of empty command zones and things like that we're so used to now we're so used to being able to come in and then just paying for the events we want to plan it's not like a comic-con you're not seeing things you're not there's not like you're not coming in to meet your favorite artists you're not coming in to you know you're when you pay to enter a comic-con when you pay like a a pass to actually get through the door, I feel like you're still getting something out of that. You're getting value from that. The value you're getting from a magic convention is playing in those events. Right. And I'll be, there are vendors at these and apparently in this one past 30th anniversary event, it was relatively limited what vendors were there. Seemed like more of a a Watsy show from what I heard. And, you know, there was a a cool, a few different panels that were cool. There was digital talk with Richard Garfield, stuff like that. But make the event free. People could come in, see these vendors, go see artists, support them. And then all these panels you're having, charge a $5 fee to go see a panel. More than that, probably, with how this event was priced, priced. But, you know, there's no reason just entry into the hall has to be charged. It shuts out people that love magic and just might not have the funds to go to an event like this. It shuts out people that are just curious what magic are about. If I had never played magic before and I went to one of these events and they said $120 at the door, I would have laughed at them. There's no way I'd go in to see a couple of vendors and not play in any events or get any swag or anything. 
It just doesn't make any sense. And, and, and it's worked one way for so long. Why change it? One of those price points was entry into the command zone as part of the perk. Obviously, there's a bunch of other things that went along with it. But 350 bucks. And a lot of people, all they want to do is go play the command zone with people from around the country and world that liven up their own experiences. And the only way to get into those was to drop a $350 on a pass that you mostly weren't going to use. That's it's, insane. It, it's really insane. And no no daily option available. You couldn't pay the daily fee to get in and then a daily command zone fee. You had to buy that $350 pass. For the whole weekend? For the whole weekend. Oh, wow. Yeah, and... I don't know if this changed later because I did see, obviously there was that big post on Twitter where the command zone was virtually empty. And my understanding is that that was the beginning of the event on Friday. Doors had just opened. So obviously there's a little bit of bias going on there. And from my understanding, the command zone did fill up gradually. I heard partially of that was because there was overflow from other events that needed the space. I didn't confirm that really with anybody. The price point was a huge exclusion for everybody, in my opinion. We had people outside the hall in different adjacent halls that were vacant playing cards outside on tables. People could play outside the tables anywhere. And you had obviously this huge demand if people were going outside of the convention to play. You should have made it more accessible for everybody inside Magic 30. But the one nice thing that I kind of hope comes out of this is an increase in non-WOTC events or conventions. We'll be at Magic Summit, our MTG Summit, which is a, a good example. Or we would have already had been by the time this comes out. Yes, yeah, yeah. We'll have already been at MTG Summit by the time this comes out. There's a lot of other events that have gone on that are starting to gain popularity for different formats. Every single one of them is structured like the Magic Fest used to be, and they seem to be doing well, whereas the Magic 30 event in Vegas seemed to have all of these issues. And so I'm really hoping that it opens it up to allow us to experience more of these, you know, maybe more closer to home. The MTG Summit is in Salt Lake, which is a, a lot closer to us. It's actually a lot closer to us even than Vegas is. And it's kind of nice to be able to have these closer events, have these these free entry events. Yeah, and I'm super excited for Magic 30. Kyle and I, we bought the VIP package, which you know normally probably would have been more than I would spend on an event of this type, but we haven't been since 2019, and they are making a lot of bold promises and predictions, and this package seemed to be the most cost efficient for me to, you know, participate in all these things, exciting events that they have going on, all these different things that they're bringing in that's unique to the summit for sure. And hopefully something we see more often in the future. Oh yeah. Well, I, I think we need to close this one out. Yeah, definitely. So I'm Matt and I'm Kyle and we're the casual tutors. Thanks for listening.